Welcome to the third keynote lecture event, and welcome to Rachel Payne for this. Um, this is an ongoing series being organised by the Creating Publics Project. So these events have been um, set up to provide a platform for reflection, conversation and substantive thinking about what is being set in motion by the current proliferation of demands for public engagement. At a moment when institutions are in flux, how is the weight of being public and of making and sustaining forms of publicness also being redistributed and carried? In contexts where uncertainties about forms of collectivity are acute and deeply felt, particularly perhaps amongst social scientists, what does it mean to continue to have faith in the idea of being public? And finally, if social science is viewed not as a thing but rather as a set of lived and everyday social relations and practices, practices whose existence depends on forms of public as well as institutional, technological and financial support, what can be done by social scientists with others to intervene in these relations, to reconfigure their public effects? To deliver today's keynote lecture, I'm delighted to welcome Rachel Payne, who has travelled from the northeast this morning to be with us this afternoon. Rachel is Professor of Geography at the University of Durham and Co-Director of the University's Centre for Social Justice and Community Action. Her research has made significant contributions to topics including domestic and state violence, emotions and geopolitics, intergenerational relations and activism, as well as thinking about collaborative, participative and action research methods too. In the last couple of years, she has also reflected on the impacts of the REF, which is, via Ellie, how I first came into contact with Rachel's work. Um, Rachel will speak today for about three quarters of an hour, followed by a short response from Clive Barnett. We'll then open up for questions and collective discussion. Um, today's event is being recorded and broadcast live over the web, with this also allowing people watching online to email in comments and questions, which Amandine is kindly fielding for us. Um, Rachel's lecture today is titled Impacting Publics, Striking a Blow or Walking Together. So please join me in welcoming Rachel Payne. Thanks very much, Nick, and thanks for inviting me. It's lovely to be here. Um, well, I was a few years ago when um, Impact raised its um, head... Um, I guess I was one of the people who cautiously welcomed this and felt sort of maybe slightly chuffed about it. And the reason for this, I think, was that um, I, I guess those of us who, who have considered ourselves action researchers for many years, and for me it's over two <coughs> decades now, um, felt that maybe, you know, at last there was going to be some recognition of this kind of work. Um, but we soon reverted to our sort of despondent, cynical <laughs> selves, you'll be glad to hear. Um, well, not, not entirely. I mean, I think impact is still kind of up for grabs, isn't it? And it's still being produced. And so until the end of this year, I'm still pretty optimistic. Um, but a little bit worried. And my talk is going to focus on this notion of impact as a kind of a linear um, event um, and a one-way street. And it, it's that that I think is, is problematic um, when we're thinking about impact and the shape it's going to take. Now, we've heard a lot of criticism of um, the so-called new public management and the idea of accountability, um, raising standards, 
um, in public life and public services and so on, and the ways in which that's affected universities. Um, and I guess many of us in the room will kind of really take that sort of critique for granted. But what I want to do today is to question exactly what, what form of impact um, is likely to be reproduced and remade through this, this latest initiative. Um, and particularly within that, to think about power. Okay, so not just thinking about the impacts of audit and managerialism, but, but there's, that there are reasons for the particular shape that, that I suspect that's going to take. And for me, that's problematic um, in two regards. Um, and first, because I think it's possible that this, this form of impact is going to be somewhat at odds with participatory um, research, collaborative research, and activist research. And the second reason, which is related, um, is I want to put forward um, a feminist analysis of impact that I'll, I'll come to about halfway through the talk and make an argument that it may be, through the ref and particularly through impact, what we're seeing is this reiteration of a, a masculinist um, form of knowledge power relations. Okay, so this isn't, this, the effects of managerialism are not, they're not neutral in other words. And as I say, I, th I see those two things as related because participatory research, I think, is underpinned by a feminist politics. So it's a research with, together with, um, rather than on or against. So, and I will be exaggerating, you'll be glad to hear. Um, I will be drawing binaries that I don't 100% believe in, but I'm doing it for the purposes of impact, right? <laughs> so the tail's wagging the dog already. I'm going to come to talk more specifically about participatory action research, which is um, the m form of research that I've written about and I practice very inexpertly. And um, I'm going to expose some of my um, shoddy research practice in the second half of the talk. I think it's important um, to do that. And we have these conversations. Uh, and a final proviso um, is that, of course, as UK scholars, um, you know, colleagues overseas often sort of roll their eyeballs and raise their eyebrows when we engage in this kind of um, angst-ridden debate about the institutional pressures that we're under. Um, and that's fair enough, of course, because we're very privileged compared with many academics in other parts of the world. Um, but I, I think that power and also anxiety are both very complex and messy things, um, and, and they, don't, they don't work in particularly predictable ways um, either. And it, I think it's especially important that at institutions such as the Open University and Durham, we have these conversations and um, really interested and sort of delighted to learn about the, the project that Nick's leading, the Creating Publics um, program, which I think is, is very important in this respect. So it's really important that we do raise these critical questions, that we continue to, to uh, persist with that about audit, but about what it's doing to research, um, what it may do in the future, and most importantly, what it does to opportunities for tackling some of the social justice issues that we're all concerned, um, many of us are concerned with the researching. So what are the, the opportunities for tackling those um, as well as simply describing them? Okay, so first of all, I, I just have a, a quite random series of um, ranty questions about ref impact and power. And then I want to move on to a feminist analysis of impact, an, al al an alternative, um, which at the moment is sort of loosely titled participatory impact. 
So, RefRage. RefRage we've seen since roughly 2008-2009. And the the ferocity of the the response in the UK from the academic community um, to the impact agenda in particular, it's kind of easy to forget how out there, um, how, how angry people were at that time. Not quite sure what's happened to that anger since then. Um, but in 2009, these are all headlines from the Times Higher, by the way. Um, I don't know if that uh, counts as a measurable impact or not. Um, but if it does, the impact agenda has already, ha- already had plenty of impact. So the first headline is, Only Scholarly Freedom Delivers Real Impact in 2009. And this was the the title of a letter written by a a group of professors, very prominent, including some Nobel laureates. Um, And their argument was that they were concerned about this idea of academic freedom um, and that academic freedom was under threat um, by the impact agenda. By 2010, they were talking about a crisis of confidence uh, as they were running the Ref Impact pilot and uh, scholars were reportedly unconvinced. The second bullet point under 2010 there, I'll leave, how's that for impact? And this was a a remarkable survey from the uh, the UCU which showed that something like a third of professors in the UK were actually considering leaving the country because they were so worried about the impact agenda. And then, of course, um, the ref was actually postponed for a year while Willits waited for consensus on impact. I'm not quite sure if he found that consensus. Um, There's a little bit of fiddling with figures, wasn't there, and a lot of talking. So there's two concerns, really, in that that sort of first flush of, um, of anger and activism against the impact agenda. And the first is whether or not it's legitimate to assess academic research in this way, with many suggesting that it's a threat to academic freedom, And secondly, um, quite sort of detailed um, arguments over the percentage that should be attributed to impact um, in the final audit-generated score. Um, So lots of people felt that 25% was too much, so they settled on 20%. Um, Everything else is much the same, as far as I can tell. By 2013... Um, things have moved forward massively, of course. So we're, in the, we're in the last um, year of audit for this particular REF. And what's remarkable is the huge diversion of time and resources that we've seen into the impact agenda, okay, with very, very short notice, this kind of huge um, use of energy and time in post hoc rewrapping of activities as impact. Um, but also already looking ahead to the future and sort of planning five, ten, perhaps even longer into the future. So we have new university strategies. Many universities, certainly the elite universities, and there is a difference here, um, have new posts, ref impact officers. There are new roles within departments, new uh, admin staff being taken on or being diverted, new working groups, lots of new meetings. Internal funding streams to either repackage activities as impact or else plan ahead for the future. And new value systems. And what I mean by that is that very rapidly, impact is being sort of built into what is valued in academia. So along with publication, research income, um, supervising postgraduates, perhaps even teaching undergraduates. Something that is now going to be rewarded and, you know, something... Um, that at Durham, every member of staff is now expected to be thinking about. And then secondly, 
Um, there's been a, a huge amount of this effort has been put into guessing at what the measurables are likely to be. So how, how is impact going to be measured? And therefore, moving back a step from that, what actually counts as impact? Um, and then pursuing that. And it is something of working in the unknown, of course, because we don't really know. The guidance isn't really particularly clear. Um, and until we've actually been through this cycle, um, it's not clear. I mean, I would argue it's still open. We're still producing it ourselves um, within all these activities here. Thirdly, um, there's certainly been an impact on anxiety and well-being, um, which, of course, we've, you know, has been kind of something that's been racking up with every successive round of RAE and REF audit. Um, but impact, I think, has just added to something that's already been going on there. Um, so I started off by pointing out that, you know, we're in privileged institutions, we're in elite institutions. We know, right, that our institutions are going to do okay out of this because they always do okay out of things because they're privileged. Um, so there should be really nice, happy places to work at the moment. I'd like to say more about that. I'm afraid I can't. Mm -hmm. And fourthly, impact itself, of course. So what, what is impact? I mean, what does it actually mean? It's being shaped, um, and as I said, both, both post hoc and also into the future. So what kinds of impact activities um, we're going to be involved with as academics? Um, so it's a, it's a sort of not very surprising tale, really, of um, the tail wagging the dog. And, of course, we have been here before. And it's really interesting to me that we haven't really had the same level of furore or the strength of feeling um, at the things that have been audited in the past. Or, you know, the same kinds of arguments um, don't seem to be made about things like journal articles, which, of course, are still going to be the majority um, of the audit, the um, what were called esteem indicators... Um, gathering evidence on research environment, endlessly taking on more postgraduates. So these metrics have also had um, a massive um, impact on what we actually do under those headings and what we, what we do and what we are as academics. So first of all, again, on health, well-being and morale, and there's a small literature on that. Uh, secondly, on the nature of research. Um, and thirdly, it's reinforced um, an inequitable distribution of resources and influence. Um, and I would suggest that it tends to actually reinforce those power relations that are already there and those differences that are already present across, uh, within and beyond the higher education sector. So the references along the bottom there are just some from my discipline, which is human geography, um, where geographers over the years have kind of commented on and, and charted um, these effects. And there is a disjuncture, and I guess this is um, the kind of the, 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 the core of my paper, really, this disjuncture that, um, you know, kind of 20 years on, I still find this really hard to get my head around. So what are we about as social scientists? And certainly, again, I'll stick with human geography. So if we read human geography journals, um, there's great, it's great. It's the best discipline in the world. I'm convinced of that. There's some great stuff being published. Um, and it's quite radical. It's critical. It's politically radical. It veers to the left most of the time. There's a lot of feminist politics in there. There's a lot of anti-racist politics. So it feels to me that this is what we're about. There's this concern in human geography with social and environmental justice and pursuing that um, as, a, as a goal. So I guess those are our political and moral beliefs, loosely shared. And, of course, you know, not, not everybody... Um, 
agrees entirely, but those are kind of loosely the, the kind of things that we believe in um, if you read human geography journals. Um, but there's a big disjuncture, isn't there? Um, because we don't necessarily translate that into thinking about the impact of um, the work that we do. And I guess the irony with the impact agenda, well, one of the ironies with the impact agenda is that over the years, um, successive rounds of the REE have really encouraged us not to think about impact. So they've encouraged us to theorise and collect empirical data, um, but not necessarily to do anything with that, because our energies have really been taken up with other activities. And now, suddenly, um, we're being asked to consider impacts. Okay. But in a particular way, and... I would argue that the form of impact being produced reproduces those power knowledge hierarchies and also look to be perhaps not quite um, in sync with the politics and the moral values around social environmental justice that we espouse. Now, this isn't anything new, of course, um, as, as I said in relation to journal articles, um, because I think this kind of critique is also... Um, it also pertains to these, um, these sort of frequently um, cited values or um, activities or whatever they are um, that came up in those first couple of years when impact came out. So one was academic freedom or academic autonomy. One was curiosity as being important in driving our research. Um, another was blue skies research, which is somehow presented as being in opposition to impactful research. Um, and, I mean, I, I think that all of these are, are great things. They're good values, um, but they're not neutral, okay? There's nothing pure about these activities, and they're just as much rooted um, in politics and in power knowledge hierarchies um, as any other kinds of activities, including the particular form of the impact agenda. So I just think it's really important that we're critical about what it is that we're seeking to protect um, when, we, when we critique... Um, the latest blow or the latest set of demands which are, which are passed down from on high. Um, and as I say, my particular concern, which I'll get onto in a moment, is that this particular form of the impact agenda might squeeze out certain forms of research. <coughs> so, thinking a little bit more broadly about universities and our relations with others. And, of course, there's this whole kind of divide between universities and public. So we all know it's an artificial one. We, we know that, you know, we're all members of the public as well as being members of universities. Um, and the public isn't, isn't any one thing. Um, but I guess there's a, a question here around whether we still view the university as a social good, a public good, um, or whether we can accept that now they're much more corporatized. Uh, it's a good idea for them to mimic the market for the purpose of standards and accountability. Um, and inevitably then we get drawn into um, competitive practices, league tables, um, audit exercises where somebody has to come top um, and somebody has to come bottom. But also really importantly, I think, um, at that level outside the university is what's happening at the current time um, and it was interesting how the impact agenda came in um, more or less um, at the same time as the, the current climate of austerity. And what does this mean for research that's carried out in universities? Um, well, clearly it means that, you know, we're, we're under pressure 
And many of the organizations that we work with, whether it's the public sector um, or the private sector or the voluntary sector, are also under um, related sets of pressures. But for me, it tells us something about the kind of alignments between universities and others outside um, that are important and the, the types of research collaboration um, that I think it's important to protect and to pursue. And unfortunately, these are not necessarily the kinds of alignments that are going to be given most value under the impact agenda. As I said, um, the voluntary sector and public sector services, as you know, I'm sure, um, all, they've also faced audits. They've also faced these kind of shallow evaluations that focus on particular measurables that don't necessarily... Um, either either measure or represent well the value of what they do. Um, so, for example, at the moment, um, the main research project that I'm working on is with Scottish Women's Aid, um, and it's on domestic abuse. Um, and we're making an argument together about domestic abuse as a form of um, terrorism and trying to kind of unpick those binaries and those assumptions between global and local in order to make the argument about um, diminishing resourcing for domestic violence services in the UK. So we're looking at um, cuts of anything between 30% and for some of the smaller services up to 70%. Okay. And quite often, um, one of the, the reasons or excuses for some of these cuts is that the, the audit or the evaluation doesn't show that this service is, is working in the kinds of ways that the audit um, sets up to be important. Um, so I guess working with these kind of organizations, there are, there are parallels that come up all the time, I think, with the way in which our research is being audited. Um, but it also means crisis, right? It also means there's a real crisis out there. And so when I'm thinking in terms of how can my research be useful and maybe, maybe possibly have some kind of impact, I guess those are the organizations that I'm interested in working with because, of course, those in particular are life-saving services. Okay. So I've talked a lot about um, power knowledge hierarchies, um, and I just want to expand on this a little bit. So we can look at those, I think, at different levels. So first of all, um, obviously hierarchies between and within universities. So it's not a level playing field. Um, we don't come to REREF um, from a level playing field, unfortunately. Um, so the gap's been growing between old and new universities. We know that REE favoured old universities in particular ways. Um, and my suspicion is that the impact agenda is, is going to follow in that trend. Um, it also... Um, possibly um, expands differences between researchers who are secure, who are established, um, and researchers who are precari more precarious positions. So here I'm thinking about people on short-term contracts, people who um, are employed on casual contracts, fractional workers, um, often women workers in the academy, and so on. And then kind of scaling up a little bit, because we like doing this as geographers, we can think about the Anglo-American um, knowledge um, power relations. Um, so many social science disciplines, um, Anglo-American um, academic work has got really disproportionate influence globally um, and has got disproportionate status. And unfortunately, the audits that we create um, tend to work in ways that exacerbate that um, 
rather than challenge it. Um, and that happens in various ways through these audits. Um, and it, again, it, you know, it, it would be a shame, others have written about this elsewhere, it would be a real shame if the impact agenda didn't value the kinds of work that are going on um, internationally. We'll have to wait and see what happens on that. But then also between the university and wider society, thinking about types of user and types of public um, and again, you know, the work that Nick and his programme have been doing on what a public is, thinking about how different publics are summoned and created um, by, by audit, amongst other, other pressures. Um, so what is this impact agenda going to do to different types of user? Is it going to um, favour some of them? Does it mean that we want to work more with certain types of influential user um, rather than others, certain publics rather than others? Are they going to be more valuable to us? Secondly, the nature of engagement. So what kinds of engagements are encouraged by the impact agenda in its current form? Um, and thirdly, the nature of research. So what types of research are going to be most efficient, most impactful, most effective and most rewarded um, under this impact agenda that's coming up? Um, so really, I guess all those points are about power knowledge hierarchies um, and how does, it, how, does, how does the impact agenda possibly reinforce or challenge those various privileges that I guess, you know, m most of us don't really um, want to see those, those different hierarchies persisting. Um, what can we do about that? So, I promised a, a feminist analysis of impact. Well, if you look it up in the dictionary... Impact has a particular meaning. It's an interesting word. So it means striking, collision, um, influence, effect. And I guess what this summons up for me is the idea of a single significant blow. Um, okay, so this is where the exaggeration, the simplification comes in. Bear with me. But it's certainly limited in time. Okay, so although the impact agenda um, is sort of relatively generous in terms of the time you're allowed to, to take before you have an impact, it's very much a linear process um, and effect, and it's, it's largely a one-way process, isn't it? Um, so this really uh, matches the ways in which impact is measured and rewarded via REF. And it's very much thirdly about us transferring our knowledge to them. Okay, so I guess it's, um, it's an extension of that kind of problem with academic research that feminists have pointed out over the decades, having described it as um, a conversation between us about them. Okay, so it's rarely with, it's, it's rarely uh, couched in collaborative terms or about co-learning or co-production of knowledge. Um, fourthly, um, and again, you know, we'll have to wait and see on all these things, but it feels at the moment, from the ways in which it seems to be working through, that there's some kind of high visibility thing going on there with the types of research that are likely to be put forward as case studies. Um, and through that, a kind of reinscription of the, the academic as authority figure. Um, and finally then, it has strong resonance with more masculine forms of knowledge production um, that feminist academics have been critiquing, again, for decades. Um, so if an impact is a single significant blow with a linear temporal track from incident to effect, that might be reflected in the ways that pathways to impact are conceived of, measured and rewarded through REF. So we can read... Um, more masculine forms of knowledge power relations in the language of reach and significance. 
in the focus on outcomes rather than process, in the scaling of activities that are awarded, and I'll come back to that issue of scaling, um, but I, I think there's still something there about bigger is better, in the relative positions of the organisations and movements outside of universities that might benefit and that might lose out in terms of partnerships with academics, and then, as I've said, in the fissures between universities that will do well and that might do badly out of the exercise, and then right down to the individual academics who are most likely to benefit from it as well. Um, so, as I said, exaggerating for the purpose of impact, drawing some binaries there, but I'm, I'm worried about this. I think this is worrying. I'm anxious. Um, and a, a couple of quotes there um, from feminist and also an indigenous researcher um, which just remind us um, what that word research, at its very worst, what it means. So what it can still mean, and not just in the, um, the indigenous uh, context within which Linda Tuwai Smith writes, um, but also, you know, all around us, certainly in relations sometimes between universities and, and their publics in northeast England where I work. So she says that the word research is one of the dirtiest words in the indigenous world's vocabulary. It stirs up silence, it conjures up bad memories, it raises a smile that's knowing and distrustful. It's implicated in the worst excesses of colonialism, and this remains a powerful remembered history that still offends the deepest sense of our humanity. Um, so I, I th always think it's worth reminding ourselves of the, the history of research, you know, kind of going way back. Um, and of course those traces are still very much present in many places today. Um, and then another quote from Michelle Fine, um, who's part of a founder of the Public Science Project, um, Central University of New York. Um, she's done some fantastic work over the years on public engagement in different forms. Um, She's actually not talking about the impact agenda here because she's lucky enough to be a North American. Um, she's also, again, um, talking about cuts to services for survivors of violence in North America um, and the ways in which those are evaluated and the ways in which it's harder and harder to get funding because you can't prove um, the effectiveness of what you're doing even though you, you, know, you might have other evidence from qualitative indicators that it works. And she describes these aggressive calls for evidence as reflecting a Foucauldian deflection from deep accountability. And what Michelle Fine means by deep accountability is that the accountability comes from, in this case, the service users, or I guess in our case, from the publics or the people, perhaps, who we'd really like our research to have an impact on. Um, so I think there's a nice kind of transferability there to... Um, the impact agenda. What do alternatives look like? Okay, so that's a bit doom and gloom so far, isn't it? So I want to be um, a bit more optimistic now and, and point to some of the, what I think is really exciting work that's really taken off um, in the last 10 years or so in particular um, across the social sciences. Now, of course, patisserie research has been with us since the 1950s, 1960s. That's nothing new. Um, but in terms of research methodology and thinking about impact, um, I guess it's, it's become uh, much more popular much more recently. Um, and it's a kind of interesting tension that, that that movement has been gathering pace, that kind of participatory and activist research, at the same time as um, these growing um, calls for evidence and this deflection from deep accountability. 
Um, so contradictory trends there. Can we somehow kind of fit these together um, and, and do something a bit more useful? Well, I think participatory impact, so rather than um, being a single blow, might be long-term. How do we measure that? Might be diffuse, might be distributed, certainly would be shared. Okay, so um, would be something for us rather than something for them. Might be circular, might be soft, might be about um, what are unpleasantly called soft outcomes, soft processes. How do we measure those? Um, and certainly would be together, would be about this notion of um, researchers walking together. Um, I want to talk now about some of the principles of participatory impact. Um, and this section comes from a paper in the uh, geographical journal called Area um, that I published with Mike Kesby and Kai Askins in 2011. So I'd really like to acknowledge them um, and their work on this paper at this point. Um, first of all, um, I mean, you're probably all familiar with participatory research, but it's, it's, it's not a methodology, so it changes the ownership of research. Um, and it's about co-producing research. Um, it might involve academics, it, it might not. Um, the centre, uh, which Nick mentioned at Durham University, um, which I'm co-director of, we provide lots of training in PAR, which community groups take away and, um, and run their own research projects um, without needing to have any kind of further involvement uh, with academics. Um, but ownership is shared, and ownership of PAR projects rarely kind of sits within uh, the academy. So perhaps that's sort of problem or opportunity number one. Secondly, impact is conceived of as a two-way relationship um, in this increasingly popular form of collaborative research. Um, so it's not just about that kind of... Um, simple model of academics having ideas, doing research and impacting on publics, but it's about publics having ideas, doing research, impacting on what academics do, perhaps setting questions, perhaps being involved in collecting data, certainly having an impact in analysis and dissemination, uh, and thinking way beyond a journal article. Thirdly, the argument that we were making in that paper is that scale of engagement doesn't equate to quality of impact. Now, that was something um, that we, a few of us, put forward to the Royal Geographical Society who passed it on in the impact consultation. And there is actually a footnote in there. So they've kind of reformulated the idea of reach and significance and made it clear that they really don't want to see that being interpreted as big is good, right? So national, international impacts are great. Um, something that's locally contained um, is bad. However... Um, we'll, we'll wait and see, I think, how that one pans out. Um, but certainly I think there's an argument to be made that um, um, good impact can take place at all scales. And it might be a really small scale. It might be a really intense project that involves people for a long period of time in great depth, in great detail. Um, and who's to say that that's not still um, just as high a quality project and impact? Fourthly... We were arguing that impact doesn't just occur at the end of the process, so from the single blow, from the research outputs. I mean, this, this idea that we publish journal articles and it somehow affects change is just crazy when, what, two people read the average um, article in geography? I don't think so. Um, 
So we've been trying to argue that impact occurs throughout research processes. Um, and there's all kinds of soft outcomes branching off at different stages. And it's not just about the end. So there's something important there about the process. Um, and then finally, I mean, I'm uncomfortable with this phrase, but it's about soft as well as hard measurables. And there are ways of measuring um, things other than those very kind of quantitative, very visible um, impacts, which, which, um, which become visible in the years um, after a research project has ended. Okay, so I'm going to go on now to say a little bit more about participatory action research and actually try to audit um, some examples of my own practice, which will probably be rather painful, um, but I think necessary. Um, so participatory research, action research, um, is just one model of collaborative working. Um, it's, not, it's not the model, it's not the only model, it's not necessarily the best model, but it's a model, um, and it's one um, that I tend to work within. Um, Michelle Fine again describes it as deliberately inverting who constructs research questions, designs, methods, interpretations and products, who engages in surveillance, and researchers from the bottom of social hierarchies are repositioning as the subjects and article architects of critical inquiry, contesting hierarchy in the distribution of resources. Okay, so it's about a, a collaboration um, where it's not just academic, the academics on the team who are asking the questions or carrying out the research. Um, and then I've also um, put in um, that really important reminder from Bill Cook and Uma Kathari in 2001 as a response to participatory development, um, which reminds us that participation itself is a very contested and very messy and sometimes quite dangerous thing. Um, and it can be tyrannical. So we've had this whole kind of wave of um, critique um, and counter-responses from people like um, Giles here. Um, and, and those debates are continuing about participation and, you know, in what ways can it be mobilised for um, liberatory social change. I mean, I, I guess my position is that it still can be, but increasingly what I've seen since it became popular in the academy um, is that it's being used in ways which are not doing that at all. And Cook and Cathari describe this as tyrannical. Inevitably, I guess, when institutions get hold of processes which were originally designed as ground-up um, activist processes, um, there is a certain inevitability. Um, I tend to agree to that, to that tyranny. Um, I guess it, it, it depends how we do it. So I just wanted to, to raise that critique at this point. So what are the implications of this for impact? Well, in participatory action research, as I understand it, it's not about methods, it's not about outcomes. Um, so on their own, they don't really make for user engagement or this, this messy thing called participation. Um, and instead, it's much more about an approach, um, an ethos even, it's been described out. It's, it's a kind of a way of being, a way of um, approaching research. It's certainly about a set of ethics, um, and a set of politics, and it's about that word collaboration um, as central. So perhaps if we're thinking about the implications for impact, it's not so much asking the question, how can I access an impact upon users in my research, um, but how could I open up my research to collaborate with others with uh, shared goals? Um, and when I was talking about the context of austerity, I mean, you know, clearly there are lots of others round about universities who do have those shared goals um, and perhaps um, 
are interested in this. I mean, plenty who are not and don't have the time or the resources to take part. I think it's important to acknowledge that um, as well. So what I want to do now is um, audit, a quick audit of PAR in the, um, the, the time that I've got left. Um, and I want to do this really to illuminate some of the presumptions about impact and sort of consider how, how well they fit or not with participatory work. So I'm just going to very quickly um, describe four projects I've been invol involved with in the last few years. Um, I think it's really important to be explicit about our own practice and not, um, you know, try not to kind of make these critiques from an ironic distance. Um, and in no way am I suggesting that these are good examples or, you know, best practice or, you know, either of research impact or PAR or anything else. Um, nor, as I've said, that PAR is also um, the best way to proceed. So, for example, the, the, the current project that's taking up most of my time at the moment on domestic abuse of Scottish Women's Aid, um, it's not a participatory study. It's a collaborative study with the organisation, but it's not a PAR study for various reasons. Um, so, but let's, let's run these through audit and see what comes out. So the first one, um, the earliest, which I, I conducted a few years ago, it was, um, it was about young people fear in geopolitics. Um, it was a, a two-year collaboration with a, a really small but quite influential refugee-led organisation in Newcastle-upon-Tyne uh, called African Community Advice North East. Um, and I worked with them, uh, some of the time with Kai Askins, some of the time alone, um, over these two years and sort of ran this, this succession of um, projects over a few weeks or a few months with some of the young people who um, attended this particular community centre in Biker in the east end of Newcastle. Um, and they were about half and half, so some of them were African refugee young people and some were locally born white British young people. And... Um, we worked on some art projects, as you can see there. We worked on a kind of traditional participatory diagramming project to, um, to generate research questions and figure out what they wanted to focus on. We worked with other groups of young people in the Northeast. We compared findings. Um, we did a website. We put together the report that you can see on the right-hand side there um, and basically had, had sort of various activities um, involved. Now, when I came to think about the impactfulness of this, um, as, as I had to a year or two ago, it was really difficult um, because I guess I feel like with that organisation I had quite a close collaboration um, and we worked together and the project um, fulfilled the goals that both of us had um, but we were also working really closely with the young people and, um, and they were kind of leading the agenda and coming up with new issues and, and topics and priorities and that was reflected in the, the kind of final outputs um, but probably the, the most impact that, it, that that project had um, was on um, those 20 or so young people who were involved, um, kind of dropping in, uh, dropping out over the, the two-year period. Um, and how, how do you measure that? It's difficult. Um, I mean, you know, we can talk to them now. Um, we can talk to their parents, we can talk to their teachers, um, but it's really, really difficult, I think, to measure or you sort of even begin to think about um, those kinds of impacts. We also did have some kind of more tangible impacts in terms of um, two art exhibitions, including one at a, a kind of um, quite well-known public art site for a few months. Lots of people walked past the art not really measurable enough, it seems. So that was a difficult one, I think, in terms of impact. Um, 
The second one um, is probably a sort of a more more coherent, um, not quite such a such a lengthy, diverse project um, with members of Loon Rivers Trust, um, and this was funded by ESRC RELU program. Um, and it was carried out um, with a physical geographer and an environmental scientist in the whole kind of context of water management um, at present, where there's a lot of talk about participation and stakeholders and involving publics, um, but nobody really seems to know exactly what that might mean. So we decided to use PAR as a, as a sort of more radical process um, and develop research questions with this group and just take it from there, um, taking a bit of risk, a risk. So the image on the left-hand side there is from our first meeting, which was brainstorming. And basically, it's brainstorming went on for the first four weeks of the project. Uh, and it, was, it took that long to actually get a research focus. Uh, there were so many issues within the catchment that the group wanted to study. Um, but then after that, it really took off once we'd um, agreed what the project was going to be about. And... Um, we all had different roles on the project, different people collected different sorts of data, had input into modelling, um, and it was members of the, the trust rather than the academics who designed uh, what, what I'm told is quite a, an innovative model um, for testing farmyard vulnerability because the thing that we were interested in was um, slurry pollution. That was the topic they chose to focus on. So this quite kind of tangible output did come out of that PAR process. Um, as well as, we felt, a sort of fairly robust testing of PAR as a process for local people to manage and respond to their own um, water resources. Um, but again, a little bit kind of problematic thinking about this in terms of impact as it's currently conceived. Um, so that I guess there's, there's, a, there's the scale issue here, again, is really important, that it was, it's local, it's one river catchment. Yes, it's changed their practice, and they're using the model um, that came out of it in their own work locally. Um, but scaling up is really difficult because the Environment Agency use a different set of participatory methods, um, which don't strike me as terribly participatory. And there's a whole kind of hierarchy of how policy is made and how questions are set. Um, for local areas from above, um, which it's quite difficult um, to have impact on them, at least at this stage. Um, so there's something there about institutions and infrastructures, but certainly um, as a nested project, I feel like that, that had a reasonable impact. And then thirdly, um, a bit more recently still, so this is still ongoing, um, I've been working with the Transition Research Network, which is the research arm of the Transition Towns Initiative, which is local, national, and uh, global now, and really well connected um, in terms of those different scalings as well. Um, and interestingly, I think this project kind of arose because of their anxiety about impact, or, or certainly as the work of transitions become more well-known and more popular, receiving an awful lot of phone calls from researchers, postgrads who wanted to do research on transition, and having lots of experience of that research that wasn't necessarily putting anything back, um, just kind of taking data, studying what they were doing, and going off and writing theses, um, and not necessarily hearing anything from it. So the idea here was to um, develop a research protocol. So... Um, We've been doing that together and writing um, what's called a pattern language. I don't know if any of you are familiar with pattern language, but it takes a long time to write. Um, so we're just trying to finish that off at the moment. Um, but when I think about this in terms of impact, um, I think it will have a significant impact because it governs how um, this loose network of initiatives and organisations 
do their research into the future. Um, but I also suspect that it's too collaborative because most of the research is conducted by members of the, net, of the um, transition movement um, and the, the research protocol that's been developed collaboratively at every stage. So it becomes really difficult in these kind of collaborations to pull out the academic, the academic brain and um, the ideas and to say this has come from the university and it's had this impact. It's difficult. And then finally, something that looks like it might be an impact case study, um, which between you and me and these four walls, it's probably the least radical of all the PAR projects I've ever done. And kind of um, did, did it by accident um, with um, some fantastic forward-thinking people working on participatory museum practice in Tynanwyr Archives and Museums who were members of our um, steering group at the Centre of Social Justice at the University. So we kind of de we developed this research relationship and did this interesting project around participatory revisioning and using PAR within the institution um, with a whole range of publics and stakeholders um, and it seems to have had some impacts. seems to have had some impacts, um, one of which is the opening of a, a new gallery in the museum in July um, and various grants uh, over for, for the museums they managed to bring in on the back of this research worth over half a million. Okay, So we have numbers. We have some good numbers there. So that's impact, right? Um, however, it's institutional, and I guess that's kind of ironic. I mean, I don't think it's tyrannical. I hope it's not tyrannical, that project, but it's certainly something about working within an institution um, that doesn't sit completely comfortably with PAR. Um, and then also, of course, um, what might yet um, mess this up a little bit is the, is the context of austerity. And Newcastle-upon-Tyne is just cutting its arts budget by 100%. The museum service is breaking up, which is really tragic. Um, so again, um, we're not quite sure exactly what's going to happen with that one. That's probably enough state secrets for now, isn't it? Okay, so instead, just to start, start finishing off, I guess what I've talked about, or what I've been alluding to, is more of a transformative, quiet politics of impact, not a high-vis um, politics of impact. And I'm drawing here again on my friend and colleague, Kai Askin's notion of quiet politics, and she's used that phrase in relation to um, refugee relations with local people and how that kind of activism works. Um, and I like to think about activism in participatory action research as sometimes being loud and noisy, but very often being very small-scale, quiet. Still transformative, maybe even more radical, who knows? Um, I think effective knowledge co-production is more diverse and porous. It's a series of smaller transformative actions quite often, um, and it might just arise through change understanding or learning through those involved. It's certainly relational in two-way. And rather than the main focus being progress within the university or a competition between universities, I think these changes outside are more likely to be sustained um, if they're within this kind of... Um, long-term way of working where research is situated um, within those people and places involved in the research. And of course, to facilitate this, we really need to scale up in some way. So this is never going to work through a series of short-term projects, um, even if we can get them funded and recognised in the audits. Um, so it has to go beyond that. Um, and I think what's really helpful, um, as well as having... Uh, programs like the one that Nick's working on at the moment um, is somehow to build infrastructures and they may be formal 
or they may be informal, um, that actually support this form of collaborative knowledge co-production. Um, so they may be institutional, or it may involve kind of networking, open access, and so on beyond institutions. There's a few examples around. I mean, I guess some of them are rather um, fragile and precarious, but they're out there. Best one is probably the public science project that I mentioned at Cooney. Um, there's a great one going on at Brighton University called CUP, Community University Partnerships. And then, of course, we've got our own Centre for Social Justice and Community Action at Durham University. And what we do here, um, we're, not, we're not running this centre like any research centre that's simply focused on bringing in grants, though we do try to bring in grants, of course. Um, we want to bring together research, teaching, public community engagement, um, training and staff development around social justice issues um, and largely using for disparate action research. So all sorts of examples there. I don't have time to say too much about this, but really involving students, undergraduates in community research, providing free training, um, probably trained thousands of people um, locally and from around the country in PAR from different backgrounds, networking opportunities. Um, so this kind of informal, loose, soft infrastructure, if you like, that I think facilitates good university community collaborations, and it's really necessary. Um, funding's an issue. Funding will be good. So, conclusions. I really like that quote from Michelle Fine, so I'm going to conclude with that one again. And uh, say again that alternatives are more important in the context of austerity. So there's some tensions here that appear to be working against each other. I don't know if we can work between them. Um, I guess that's what we're trying to do. That there is this critical mass of alternative research approaches growing, um, which is great. The shape of impact might be running counter. Who knows? Maybe we can uh, produce it a bit more wisely. That participation itself is a multiply positioned and contested object. And, you know, it's very clearly been used by institutions um, in other ways, I think in ways that, that sometimes threaten uh, collaborative research rather than support it. Um, we need to somehow produce impact that values these approaches as well as other approaches. So this isn't either or for me. This is both and. Lots of approaches to impact, I think, are needed. And then finally, these are facilitated, as I've said, um, tried to make the argument that it's the infrastructure around research we should really be looking at. So it's not audit, which inevitably leads us to constantly be thinking short-term, short-term, short-term. It's that long-term infrastructure that facilitates collaboration. Okay, I'll leave it there. Thank you. <clears throat> Very, very much, Rachel, and we're going to have plenty of time for questions and discussion. Well, that kind of short response from Clive Barnett. Thanks, Clive. Okay. <coughs> um, uh, what I'm going to do is quickly kind of uh, uh, flag two or three issues which um, uh, uh, thinking about having to respond to Rachel's talk kind of um, provoked. Uh, um, I didn't quite know exactly what she was going to say, but fortunately she said the sorts of things I was anticipating based on... Um, <coughs> Uh, partly the, she has an interview in our, uh, the LSE Impact blog, which, uh, uh, which if you haven't read, you might want to go and have a look at. And also, because I'm a geographer too, and it is a great place to, um, to be, um, I'm sort of also familiar with the debate that um, uh, followed one of the papers that Rachel kind of mentioned that she and her colleagues uh, published in, it, in area. Um, so the first kind of general thing um, I wanted to um, uh, sort of acknowledge, the reason I kind of liked um, uh, what... Rachel has to say is, is partly because she's 
articulated with, with her colleagues as well, sort of the ambivalence around impact, the sense on the one hand, we kind of, particularly if you're involved in that world at the moment, um, that we all, we all know why um, uh, uh, it might be horrible, um, and sort of certain versions might be um, detrimental in all sorts of ways, but I think what's particularly valuable is Rachel's um, attempt to kind of uh, uh, articulate the ways in which there might still be certain sorts of opportunities and potentials in, in the way in which the impact agenda unravels, given that it clearly is um, rather up in the air, effectively. I don't think anybody knows what impact is yet. They might know this time next year, but um, at the moment they don't. Um, so that's the first thing. And I think that kind of what follows from that is, um, uh, I think um, this was perhaps more at the beginning of the, of, of the talk, um, the way in which Rachel has kind of raised the a set of issues about the terms of criticism that one uses in engaging with um, uh, the impact agenda and perhaps more broadly kind of transformations of the higher education um, system uh, at the moment in the, in the U UK. Um, uh, again, sort of there's sort of a set of ready-made versions of, of criticism of particularly impact that we can kind of appeal to and, and uh, various people, Stefan Collini perhaps might be the most well-known well uh, um, person who's articulated uh, those sort of almost predictable critiques, um, which revolve particularly around kind of accounts of academic autonomy and creativity and, and so on. Uh, strikes me, as an aside, uh, um, that, that these debates often get dominated by kind of um, people from the humanities. Don't want to be rude to anybody from the humanities. But the other thing I liked about Rachel's talk, one of the other things is, is that it's a social science take. It's kind of raising a set of social science issues about uh, how to understand these processes. Um, so, so I think that's also important, kind of to, 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 to um, as it were, to take note and to reflect on the kind of the, the automatic vocabularies we have for for um, for, for trying to uh, engage critically uh, with, with these sorts of processes, rather than simply translate our whinges into um, high, high sounding principles. That that leads to kind of a second thought, which is really about kind of, um, and this in a sense does come out of of the debate that that followed the, the paper that, uh, that Rachel and her colleagues published in, in, in area about what sorts of social science might be um, appropriate for understanding and for engaging kind of uh, what's going on around impact in particular. Kind of one version of a story, not least, uh, not only about Im around impact, but also, I guess, more, more broadly about kind of uh, ch changes going on in higher education in the last three or four years in particular, is around the neoliberalisation of universities, privatisation, <coughs> the way in which the state is doing various things to universities uh, for various sorts of reasons. And it seems to me, for all sorts of reasons, those, those vocabularies aren't terribly um, helpful. If we, if we weren't academics we were, and we just sort of were looking at an institutional field like the one we happen to inhabit, the one which Rachel has dis described, what we'd, what we'd see is a series of different sorts of organisations and different institutions manoeuvring around each other. So you yeah, have central government departments, uh, sort of then liaising with technically what I think non-departmental non public bodies, not quite quangos. So bits of the state, i.e. the research councils and HEFSI, which are like the state but much the same way as universities are engaging with universities, trying to kind of incentivise them in certain sorts of ways. Then you have other bodies like the Times Higher, uh, which is a very important player in the British higher education system. So if we, if we were looking at another field which looked like that, we'd kind of have a series of academic uh, concepts and methodologies for understanding the power relations involved. Um, and it's, it's, it seems to me that the play between those sorts of actors explains the ambivalence and the sort of opportunity which still, still, uh, still might be there. Um, and that sort of just is related to another thought. This, in a sense, is kind of the, um, uh, uh, the sort of um, the party line from the public 
group, I suppose, or at least my version of the party line from the public's group, which is, is again, the extent to which what Rachel has described um, is not really a process of the privatisation or even, let's say, the marketisation of higher education, but the, of the exposure of certain sorts of higher education practice to kind of hyper-publicity in certain sorts of ways, to agendas which insist on... Uh, um, uh, academic institutions being able to account for and be accountable in all sorts of ways to all sorts of different actors, to students, to businesses, to communities, uh, in ways in which we might well be critical of. But one of the key things seems to be going that seems to be going on there is, is not privatisation of higher education at all, but it's, it's radical publicisation, which is not going to catch on, obviously. Um, uh, but so reconfiguration of the relationships between sort of uh, uh, um, uh, publics and privates and private private devices leading to public goods, which other people here have, have, have talked about. So, and, and then the, the final point I, I had, really, which, which Rachel's kind of talk kind of confirmed was, and it goes back to the sort of the, uh, 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 raising the, the degree to which our terms of critique often kind of reproduce some problematic assumptions of, them, of their own. And it, well, it really turns on that uh, kind of um, uh, highlighting kind of the absurdity, really, of the impact Metaphor, that sort of sense of like slapping being the best possible model of, of engaging with other people, because you know that always works well, doesn't it? Just kind of throwing things at people. Um, but it kind of when I was sort of thinking about that, it just kind of occurred to me that, that at the, some, there's all, there seems to be something kind of chronic about, in a, not necessarily in a bad way, about the way in which higher education uh, uh, talks about itself and is constituted, and, and that this chronic feature is exemplified by impact. This sense that there's one institution here that has to engage with others over here. So a, a kind of a chronic recurring theme of sort of insides and outsides. So universities have to impact on publics, they have to engage either with specific users or amorphous publics, or transfer things, or disseminate things, which if you've read too much Derrida might, might be quite entertaining, but actually turns out to be just doing things with other people outside. Um, and just much more broadly, depending on which, which field you're, you're, you're familiar with, geographers grow up in, uh, learning a series of stories about geography and relevance. We're obsessed by relevance as a discipline. If you grew up in cultural studies, you were probably obsessed by selling out and worries about professionalisation. Other fields you know, will worry about politics. So, so across higher education, it seems to me, there's a recurring theme in which universities, higher education, academic life is understood as this peculiar thing that um, has to answer to its outsides in different sorts of ways. And even accounts of acad academic autonomy turn out to turn on the same sort of idea. I think, if I'm not mistaken, Kant's notion was, well, leave us a while for a bit, because that's the best way in which we could be useful eventually. Um, so I think the final thing, that was a long-winded way, so the final thing that, that Rachel's paper kind of confirmed for me, at least, was, was that there's sort of like, there's a, there seems to be like an ontology of higher education, that there's something unavoidable about... Uh, and which might be quite peculiar about higher education compared to other fields, about higher education thinking of itself as having these relationships of accountability uh, and justification and so on to, to various sorts of uh, outsides. And it's, uh, that seems to me to be the source of um, the ambivalence that, that kind of, um, in a certain sense, I think Rachel has had the courage to, to articulate rather than simply sort of saying, oh, don't like it. Um, sort of saying, oh, there's a bit of space here. Um, but it's something unavoidable, about, uh, unavoidable, it seems to me, about thinking of that those spaces of potential in, in terms of those insides and those, those outsides. So um, those are the, I had lots of other things I could say about impact too, but those are the things which kind of Rachel's talk um, made me think of. You might have all sorts of other things. So at that point, I shall, I shall leave the stage to you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, <Ryan. clears throat>